With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Pavilion in our IndieWire Screen Talk podcast live from Cannes. Good afternoon. My name is Eugene Hernandez. I'm one of the founders of IndieWire, um, and now I work at the Film Society of Lincoln Center in New York. Um, Eric, good friend, and uh, also my good friends Anne and Nigel, uh, but Eric asked me to take a moment to introduce today's event. I'm a big fan of this podcast. Um, it's a little weird to see it happening in person, even though I know these folks really well. Um, I'm used to spending my Saturday mornings listening to this podcast while I'm eating breakfast or cleaning my apartment. So it's giving me the impression that I should be doing something um, like that. But I'll try to sit casually and comfortably and just listen. Um, but in seriousness, um, I think that this podcast that uh, Eric and Anne have created at IndieWire has really been fun, but it's also been a really great way to, um, I think, achieve something that, that we thought a lot about in the early days of IndieWire, and that is provide as many different ways to offer context. It's not just about the information, it's not just about the news, it's not just about um, breaking information, but it's really about the depth of context that um, IndieWire can provide. And in the case of Eric Cohn, who's the deputy editor and also the chief film critic at IndieWire, uh, Nigel Smith, who's the managing editor, and Ann Thompson, who's the editor-at-large but also runs Thompson on Hollywood, you have this really great um, group of folks who have so much um, knowledge, history, context, not only with a place like Cannes, but who are, who are immersed in the festival. Um, you guys are out running around the festival, experiencing films, talking to people, um, learning and gleaning information that sometimes you can't really convey as fully in the written word. So to hear you guys talk about it, not only today, but in, uh, you know, throughout the year on this podcast is really great because I think it, it adds a personality to the people whose names you see in, in, on the web, not in print, on the web all the time, but also um, to give you a chance to engage each other because these are the kinds of conversations we're having all the time at a festival like this in our off hours, waiting in line for movies and that kind of thing. So looking forward to it. Um, enjoy. And off you go. Thanks so much, Eugene. That was such a nice Thank introduction. It's the best. I want him to introduce me everywhere I go now. <laughs> and by the way, you guys should definitely check out the Film Society's podcast, Close Up, which they just recently launched not too long ago. It's really great, and they have so much terrific archival material. I'm actually really curious. How many people here have listened to our podcast before? Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. So you guys are the diehards. We'll try to live up to it. Real fans. <laughs> Usually when we do this, it's over Skype because Anne's in L.A. and I'm in New York and I might be in my pajamas or something to that effect. Me too. Um, but I kind of feel like I am at this point because at Cannes you always feel like you just rolled out of bed and you're Especially when around. you saw Love last night. <laughs> I, I can tell you that it's going to a midnight movie here. It's not like going to a midnight movie at any other film Describe festival. Describe the scene. So last night, Gaspar Noe's Love premiered at midnight. It started with the mosh pit at the door. You think that you have exclusive access if you have a higher accreditation. He has a white badge, which he's been ramming down our throats this entire festival. He first, it's his first time. They, they ram it down their own throats because they're <laughs> jealous. Um, but what I will say is that 
every time you think you have some kind of exclusive access at this festival, they beat you down a little bit and put you in your place. And even even at something like this, something this this movie that really needed the crowd there, it was hard to get into this movie. And then once we were inside, the scene was the pandemonium in some ways really had an effect on the mood for this screening. You know, this 3D graphic sex story. Uh, and they were blasting disco jams right before the premiere, I think. Right. Uh, Donna Summer's I Feel... What's that song called? I Feel... I Feel Love was uh, blasting. A very appropriate Getting everybody choice. in the mood. Right. Is the movie any good? No. Well, so then, it, <laughs> then this two-hour kind of tragic story of, of a breakup with interludes of, of humping proceeded to take place and it was kind of underwhelming but there was still a pretty substantial standing ovation and that's what I think is really unique about Cannes is that you can't really trust the scene but there's something that's so galvanizing about it anyway because of the kinds of movies that we're talking about and there have been better movies that have received these sort of reactions as well which is what I think we're going to get into. But I feel like that reaction happens all the time when the talent's there. I mean, this was treated more was like a, a premiere screening. than a press screening. The public screening just happened today at 11, so I'm curious to know what the reaction was like following that one. I'm sure there were some boos. People like to uh, actually time the ovations because, you know, they were trying to tell me that the ovation for youth was the longest one of the festival. 13 minutes, they claimed you know, So it's, it's, it's all fake. Trust me. Right. Well, that's the thing, though. There's something illusory about... The, the quality at Cannes, but at the same time, there are so many good movies, and I would I would posit to you that this is maybe not one of the better years I've I've, I've attended in in the, in the nine that I've been here, but it still got a good amount of stuff. And we were talking about this beforehand. We each have our sort of top picks, um, and those top picks are strong movies we're going to be talking about for quite some time. So maybe we should get into that up front here, and then we can dig through you know who has it right and who has it wrong. What's your favorite film, Nigel? My favorite? You want you want one? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'm gonna ha- go have to go with uh, Amy, the Amy Winehouse documentary. Was that a it's was that a groan or was there. that a yes? Oh, good. Thirteen minute ovation right now. Oh, there you go. Let's 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 spend the whole podcast applauding this movie. Um, that was easily the movie that had me leaving the theater the most shaken up, literally depressed. Yeah. By the way, another but midnight that's a good selection. Thing. I needed that's a, a long thing. hug after a, seeing that movie. A very strange midnight selection because it's incredibly depressing. Yeah. Really well done, and as one of the only documentaries here outside of the Cannes Classics, it's it's, it's a closing it's, night film and one of the place. few British films in the official selection. Yeah. And the the director Asif Kapadia, who made Senna, uses the same approach of putting incredible mix media together to assemble a narrative without narrators and in effect he's got Amy Winehouse looking right at you a lot of the time because he's using a lot of paparazzi footage which I was a little uncomfortable with I didn't find there was too much of it and I think the reason he uses it is to do you know kind of immersing you in her world well immersing you in her world and uh, also criticizing the footage itself by including so much of it well sure i mean there's a part of the movie where you see how her father brought this reality tv crew into her life at an incredibly fragile moment which is really her entire life in some ways and and sort of in the media spectacle that's in that movie is part of what led to her downfall i'm really curious to see how this movie plays as it continues to get out there because anybody who wants to go and hear a little bit more about sort of the art behind the music is maybe going to be disappointed. It's not, it's not that kind of a movie. It's not about her creative intelligence so much as the hoopla surrounding her and, and how that... Well, I think it really delves into her songwriting process. I have to disagree with you there. I mean, that's 
why he includes the lyrics of the songs. You know, he has this kind of visual motif where he has the, the lyrics of the songs appear on screen as she's singing them to really, you know, uh, uh, really uh, get home exactly, you know, what the songs are about and how they're actually about her struggle. He references her art, but at the same time, he's giving us an incredible picture of what has happened to her, but it has also happened to many, many, many other artists, which are what are the forces that bring someone like this down, that makes it inevitable. Absolutely. In some ways, it's a good companion piece to this uh, Kurt Cobain documentary that premiered at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year, Montage of Heck, which also, you know, another famous musician who died at 27 with a lot of archival footage and so forth. And uh, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that movie plays because, again, it's not the easiest sell. I think people would rather listen to Amy Winehouse's music and sort of appreciate those rhythms than sort of dwell on the darker side of things. But it's like watching a train wreck, and that always has some attraction, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid. That is um, true. My favorite movie, and I made a, an argument to, to this effect, there's really two. They're both the big Hollywood, big budget movies. Mad Max... Fury Road, nothing comes close. I'm sorry. Nothing. And Inside Out. Again, Pixar, genius. They both should have been in competition. The jury should be judging them, along with all these art films. Their art, as far as I'm concerned. Bottom line. Okay, Anne, though, I know you saw both of those films prior to coming here, so I want to know what your favorite film that you actually saw at Cannes is. I would go with Son of Saul Son of in Saul. that case, which is my candidate also for uh, the film that is most likely to win the Palme d'Or. No, and I'm glad that he asked that because that, that's part of the issue I have with this idea that the big movies that we have the privilege as journalists of seeing in advance should be in competition because in some ways what competition does for, cer- for certain movies is it brings them a kind of exposure that they would otherwise never come close to receiving on this kind of global stage. And I'm sorry, but Inside Out, <laughs> Mad Max, they're doing just fine. You know, you saw... Did you see Inside Out? I, I saw Inside Out here, but if I hadn't, I would have seen it like most people at some point. And, you know, it's a Pixar movie. People are already talking about it. Whereas something like Son of Saul... That's a first feature from a Hungarian director. It's a Holocaust drama with this really innovative technique. It's incredibly dreary, but it's also visceral and exciting. That's not enough to get people excited about seeing it, I think, outside of a context like this, when it received one of the biggest slots, screening slots, really, in in the world. For a first-time filmmaker, which is extremely unusual and was a sign that it must be a really good film. I agree with you. Son of Saul is a movie that this festival was designed to display. I still think that they should not be putting documentaries on the side. They should not be putting animated features on the side, whether it's... I haven't seen the, the Little Prince yet, but, you know, they should be in the conversation along with everything else. But budget is irrelevant. Genre is irrelevant. It should all be a question of what is art. Well, my, my, my top pick, although I love Son of Saul, since we already went over that one, the one that I would single out here is The Lobster from Yorgos Lanthimos, Greek filmmaker. I first saw his movie Dogtooth here a couple years ago and was just fascinated. Who is this guy with this subversive way of tackling social constructs that we take for granted, family, religion, and so forth? And this movie, which really deals with sort of the way that we understand human relationships, is on the one hand very twisted and edgy. At the same time, there's a warmth to it. 
in this romance that develops between Rachel Weisz and uh, Colin Farrell's character. And uh, I'd never seen these actors act that way before. And hearing from the filmmaker that he only wanted to work with actors who were familiar and liked his other work said something more about how they were coming to him on his terms rather than the other way around. And that's the sort of thing that I always get really excited about. What's great about The Lobster is that this is a filmmaker who is in complete control of his medium and he knew exactly what he wanted from those actors and they were perfectly capable of of giving it to him. I agree. It's also hilariously funny. So funny. It's so great. And we were at a dinner the other night where we had to answer a series of trivia questions about movies hosted by the IMDb folks. And one of the questions was what animal you would be. So, Nigel, since you weren't there, I guess... Oh, geez, on the spot? Oh, well, I'll tell you, I was a cat. A cat? Well, that doesn't surprise me. I, I was a sloth. A sloth? <laughs> fantasizing about hanging upside down, doing nothing. Wow. I'd have to go with a cheetah. And then there were sloths wow. in Inside yeah. Out, which was pretty funny. Yeah, now we know why it was your kind of movie. But I guess it's, it, one of the things that I like oh, about... That's uh, something else. There's sloths in another Disney Pixar movie later on. Oh, I smell a trend. We're Journalism in the 21st century right here. <laughs> It's all about animals. At Cannes, we don't just go to movies. We go to events. We go to dinners. We go there to parties. There was a long Pixar Disney presentation yesterday where they showed every single movie coming up. And there's a very delightful, I think it's in Zootropolis, there's a delightful uh, thing with, with uh, sloths. Wow. And so, so you went to that. You went to a preview of the Weinstein Company titles. How did that go? That was interesting. It was a stronger presentation than the one they did uh, last year. Um, and, uh, of course, we saw a little bit of Carol, which we got to see, which I loved. Another really good one. You know, yeah. All of our Very cut trailer, though. Wow. I saw the trailer before it, too. And... Hopefully they'll have time to work on that. No, I like the trailer oh, you that they screened. It. Yeah, okay. I thought it was gorgeous. Right. And, and they also uh, gave us a look at Southpaw, which they screened here supposedly they were going to screen it and then they canceled it and they took it away um, two hours before which they're promising to get an oscar for jake gyllenhaal for the one he was robbed for we were told that we were going to see this movie with jake gyllenhaal in attendance to sort of present it to us and say hello but apparently he was too busy with jury duty who would have thought to make it so they canceled it my guess is that Harvey spoke out of turn and at the presentation, and they had to scramble, and they weren't really planning to show it. Yeah. At Cannes, even Harvey has to scramble. You know, They did screen it for some press in New York um, before Cannes got underway. I know that. So. And Macbeth is coming up, obviously, at the end of the festival, which uh, none of us have seen yet. So outside of Macbeth, since we, we can't really speak to that, there are definite awards contenders that we hadn't seen last week that we can talk about a little bit more now. Carol, Carol, I would think. Carol, uh, youth for Michael Caine's performance. Absolutely. And Jane Fonda. She only has, what, five, ten minutes of screen time? She's in one big scene that woke me right up. Um, she's fantastic. I liked youth a lot, actually. I, I'm actually, this is like an interesting point, because so Jane Fonda is in, I think, eight minutes of screen time or something like that, and youth. you're hearing about her character throughout the movie, and then suddenly she's just there, and it's worth the wait, and it's some of the best stuff she's done in a while. People are going to be processing that monologue because it's very critical of the film industry and entertainment types, but I'm a little nervous about hype with these things, and with Carol as well, because the anticipation coming out of Cannes for that one scene is maybe going to blow it a little bit out of proportion. The sex scene? No, I'm talking about Jane Fonda's scene. In, uh, w- with Carol, I mean, I, I would say 
it's more just that it's a very small, tender movie, and the idea that this is somehow some kind of major masterstroke, which I think it's it's very accomplished, may mislead people as it continues to screen more widely. I'll be curious to see what they do with Best Actress with Kate Blanchett, who gives an fabulous performance and Rooney Mara because I actually think Rooney Mara gives a very nuanced and subtle and brilliant performance whereas we've seen Kate Blanchett sort of do this before yeah um, and I'm curious if are they going to make Rooney Mara supporting which is what they'll probably do but I think it's a two-hander I think they're very even I also really think it's the fox catcher of this year's race um, I think you know it's a little cold it's reserved it's not as warm as I had probably hope and anticipated. The performances are so strong. I can see the performances, the direction, the art direction really going on to net some nominations. But Costumes, best picture, for sure. I'm not so sure. I actually think the actors have the best shot and, and things like costumes and screenplay. Well, now that we've handicapped the awards, maybe we should rewind and handicap the Palme d'Or race because that's right around the corner. And we've got a fascinating jury to talk through with the Coen brothers at the top. And, uh, I, I am holding a copy of uh, Screen, the daily. They put one out every day. And they have a jury, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine jurors. And they give out stars for each film. And right now, Carol leads this group um, where Sea of Trees comes in last. But this hasn't been But they don't represent days? the jury. They, yeah. And they haven't finished. And, I kind of uh, like the fantasy element of, of looking at this jury of people who you know pretty much through their work and, and just sort of considering what might they go for because sometimes it can be accurate. I mean, Tim Burton being the head of the jury of the year that a movie as, as bizarre as Uncle Boon Me who can recall his past lives wins, I felt like that really told you something, that there are people with certain kinds of creative tendencies who may respond to things as you would expect them to. So with the Coen brothers at the head of the jury, I think we can make certain assumptions about what they might be responsive Well, to. you might want to say that they're going to lend themselves to something like The Lobster because it's so witty and controlled and well-written. And, of course, the aesthetics of Son of Saul, I would argue they will respond to. And Guillermo del Toro is on this jury. He loves to talk. Um, he likes cool, hip things. So I would, I would agree that those two seem like they're, they're sort of the front runners at this point. And I would not argue that Guillermo del Toro would necessarily vote for something like Matteo Garone's fantastic Tale of Tales because he would have done a better job directing it. Well, if you're interested in, in hearing our thoughts on this topic, we, we went into it pretty, pretty deeply uh, last week. And it feels like such a distant memory, but I, I do like it a little bit more. Why do you think you'll like it so much? Just because it features a big bug? The, the practical effects... The, they're not the, well done. But they're he not well the done. the difference between good visual effects and bad visual effects. Really. I, I, here's, here's the thing. I, I'm more forgiving of those sort of things because I like a story that tells me what it's about. I don't necessarily mind if it reminds me that I'm being told a story. And this is a movie that's in some ways about fairy tales. But... Uh, I don't think it's going to win anything. <laughs> I'm not pushing for that one either. There is a performance um, besides Michael Caine that could emerge. Yes, and Mountains that would be um, Zhao Tao in Mountains May Depart. She's fabulous. She's my favorite performance 
thus far at the festival. That's the film that brought the most waterworks. I mean, how many years me? does she have to convey? It takes place over what three decades. So this is the Zha Zhang Ke film, and last time that he was here with A Touch of Sin, he won the screenplay prize, and that was another really fascinating kind of ensemble drama about modern Chinese society. This one, in some ways, is even more ambitious because it takes place over the course of three different eras: the nineties. Uh, 2014 and then 2025 it actually ends in the future but it's a very lightly embellished version of the future and it's it's got this really tender quality to it that pulls you along. Um, it definitely could get something, though. The other film from that region, Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin, I would argue, is a superior film. Ho Shao Shen is just a, a remarkable filmmaker and has such an eye for images. And is it is, 10 years since he's made a film? We've been waiting a long time. Almost. Flight of the Red Balloon was, was a little bit more recent than that, but it's been a while, and he spent about that long, I think, developing this movie and gathering the resources it's to It's stunningly it. beautiful. Ninth century China. But also impenetrable. Yeah, yeah. But again, at Cannes, sometimes that's an asset. (laughs) (laughs) So start your bets now, folks. I guess we could open it up to questions from the audience. That's a a luxury we don't always have. Absolutely. I was going to suggest that we could also mention some of our disappointments. Sicario from Denise Villeneuve, I had high expectations for. And I think it functions as a routine genre exercise, incredibly well-directed, disappointing in the sense that Emily Blunt, who we thought might add a different perspective, is basically a passive character who uh, is part of a male drama, an action drama. I was disappointed. She's just watching the action unfold. And I've I've, I've heard from people, this script was floating around for a while before Villeneuve signed on, and other people who looked at it had that issue with it. So this is something that's been carried along with the project for a while. It also shows you just what a great director Villeneuve is, yeah. even in mediocre material. It looks spectacular. Well, during the to. press conference, they actually said that producers had been trying for years to get that part um, written as a male. And as a man, yeah. As a male character, and that they, they stuck to their guns and cast Emily Blunt. Well, this is the year of the woman at Cannes, whether or not the, the flat the flat heels scandal situation uh, changed any of that. So in some ways it's a movie in sync with that. In some ways it's out of sync with that. So She still wore high heels to the premiere. After all yeah, that. Yeah, so did the director. <laughs> the director and his two male co-stars, they all vowed to wear heels to the premiere. Were, so looking forward flats. to them walking up in size 12 heels, but that did I not happen. I have to tell you, I, I love hearing from friends and colleagues who aren't that invested in the film world when they're curious about can less so this year when they were asking me about the shoe scandal because it just was not that fun to talk about so That's all we talked about for that whole day and were you disappointed by anything uh yeah love last night gaspar noe's film i was really looking forward to it i'm not the biggest fan of enter the void but i see its merits i'm obsessed with irreversible it's one of my top films and this film just failed kind of on every level. It was his flattest-looking picture, which really surprised me, given that it was shot in 3D. I was expecting a visual wow, and it was underwhelmed by that. The sex scenes were erotic and quite hot and expertly choreographed, so those impressed me, and there's a lot of them. He really didn't hold back, and he gave me the money shot that I wanted in 3D, no less. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, sorry. Um, but there's a lot of tweets out there. I'm sure you guys have already read about that. But the plot was just so nonsensical and boring. You and said the acting wasn't the good. The acting was really subpar. Kind of, you know, I kind of expect that because it's going to be hard to get good actors to penetrate on screen, which they do a lot. 
Um, but the love story that was there, it wasn't a love story. I didn't believe it for a second. I didn't buy the, the, the chemistry between the two leads. And I don't really know what he was trying to say. I mean, if that's his idea of love, then I really feel sorry for Gaspar mm. Noé. What was your most disappointing film? Well, and on some level it is that, because I'm a big Gaspar Noé fan on some level. I was at the Enter the Void screening here when it just sort of materialized out of nowhere, not completely done with no opening credits, and just baffled people. And I was like, this is, this is cinema I can. It was just so much fun. So I was let down by that. One of the things that I, I think is important to be honest about is that while... I tend to gravitate towards what Anne may call eccentric or esoteric options in this festival. You know, I really love to pitch upon Weir Sathako's Cemetery of Splendor, things like that, that I know not everybody's going to respond to in the same way that some of the bigger films uh, will. There are some movies that you might put in that kind of broadly defined category that don't, just don't work. And there's actually there's two Romanian movies here that I was looking forward to, and one of them worked and one of them didn't. The one um, from the director of Police Adjective, um, called The Treasure, which I saw today, is actually really great. It's got this like Capra-esque element of this guy trying to find some buried treasure under a house. And uh, it's, it's very slow, as, as Romanian new wave films tend to be, but also it's got this really touching kind of payoff. But the other one, which I think is called Second Floor, from the director of Tuesday After Christmas, which is another really great movie, uh, was just a really flat, inert attempt to make a thriller about this guy who witnesses a murder in his apartment and I just, I didn't feel like it worked and it's too bad because that movie you know, it's probably not going to go anywhere but I I was really hoping for something there because when you see filmmakers like that, you want to be enthusiastic about their work so that you can share it with other people and I don't think I'll be doing that for this movie, maybe next time around And I was also disappointed disappointed by Louder Than Bombs the Joaquin Trier um, which was one of those films that's trying to tell a story about a family in English, his first time in English. He's a Norwegian uh, director. And great actors, Jesse Eisenberg, Isabel Huppert, Gabriel Byrne. Um, but the narrative is so twisted and so convoluted that somehow the whole story gets lost. I disagree. I disagree. <laughs> But that movie will have a different kind of life, I think, when it plays in, in North American festivals. It's a, there were people here who were saying that it, it, it was a very Sundance kind of a movie, and I couldn't figure out if that was meant as a pejorative. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Joachim Trier is a really talented filmmaker. Also, August 31st, if you haven't seen it, it's just like an incredible, powerful movie about this junkie. And, and this is a very tightly controlled family drama that in some ways cuts from a mold we've seen before, but I think it's, it's smarter than a lot of the more mawkish ways that that kind of story has it's been It's a very smart movie, but the suburban milieu just didn't ring true to me. It, yeah. didn't, it didn't come to life. Well, maybe it's a New York, L.A. thing. Ah, <laughs> I grew up in New York. Okay, let's do the questions. Raise right your hand. You in the back. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit and ask you guys um, about the assassin. Uh, when we, I read stuff from the press that it was a masterpiece. It was this incredible film. Uh, I just saw it maybe 20 minutes ago with uh, my good roommate over here, who's a cinephile and a PhD in film. And uh, I saw people walking out, and I uh, really didn't like the film. I uh, th- so the question is, how much? In a film that has not a very strong moving narrative, um, what is, how much patience do we have for this, these so-called festival films? 
And do we judge them in a way, in a maybe a, a softer way, a different way, and we say, well, look, this is something else that is, is visually stunning. How important is the context of the story to these festivals at Nakan? And uh, it's a conversation that I, f- I found from the people that were watching the film uh, very different than the critics. You're right to assume that there's an entire culture behind yeah. that movie that is so foreign to us, and most of us haven't studied it enough to really understand it. It's very complicated, just the history itself. And so for me, I recognize my own limitations, and I go with the flow, and I get what I can from it. Did I understand everything that was going on? No. Did I appreciate the beauty and the detail and the craft? Absolutely. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. There is a hazard in this line of work of seeing too many movies so that you're hypersensitive to different things that stand out from the norms. And Ho Chao Shen's movies are very particular. We know they're going to be slow as nails and they're going to be gorgeous. And you have to go to it to some degree on those terms if you're going to provide a reaction to it that seems fair both to the work and the kind of people who you would expect to respond to that work. And that's, I think, part of the challenge, the balancing act of being a critic is your own sensibilities and the rest of the world kind of become this one equation. I was never less than enthralled by what that movie looked like and the way it brought that world to life. And the, the fact that the, the, the pace of the movie was so slow was part of what I thought was so interesting about it because it wasn't, although there is a title card that sets up the kind of historical context of that region in that time, it was a much more personal story. And as you discover that, as you go on, you, you could tell that he's reworking certain understandings of this genre. You know, there's a very specific kind of uh, uh, you know, martial arts film in China. And the lead did not play by the rules. Right. And the in fact the end, that she, she goes, defies right. her mission. So in, in that sense, it's kind of pulling apart these genre tropes. Although, curiously, in, in the United States, it's being released by Wellgo, which is a genre label. So what will be really fascinating to see is how they market that movie. Are they going to certainly not going to fulfill an action right. premise. Right. But Although they're probably going to sell it that way. The action is, is, is well done, I will say that. If you saw Wong Kar Wai's The Grandmaster, I have similar thoughts about that one. But I, I also don't think it's wrong to not be responsive to that movie. And that's part of the challenge of this environment is saying, you can put your foot down and say, no, nah, it just, it just didn't do it for me. And th- that's valid, too. So. And I haven't seen it. We have a question from our man Eugene over there. I love that question, that question he just asked, and I have a follow-up to that, essentially. <clears throat> there are films here that everybody's talking about now that six months from now will be either forgotten or the films may not resonate you know, in a wide way. Or there's films that are really not being talked about at all or that maybe are being dismissed that we see after the festival like this suddenly become, once they get out in the real world, um, are seen differently. So for the people who are not here, who are listening to this podcast, I would love to hear you guys talk about that disconnect, because I I think about that a lot, the the experience of watching something, especially in this environment, and then having it judged so differently later. And then also, as the follow-up to that, what are some underdog films that aren't being talked about or that are being talked about maybe wrongly that you think time will um, either work against or for them? The interesting thing is... Cannes is also a market, and what struck me um, is that so many of these films have been acquired. They are going to be presented in, in the U.S. Yeah, absolutely. Even Cemetery of Splendor, which I thought was you know, 
it's a movie that if you are, were excited about a pitch at Pong stuff because you discovered him at a festival or when some of his movies got very limited release, you'd be responsive to it. Otherwise, you might just be baffled by it because there's, there's almost like a learning curve with that kind of aesthetic approach. And uh, Strand Releasing picked it up. They released his last movie, and, and so people will get a chance to see it. It's actually been a really great marketplace in that sense. There are probably things that are going to have a harder time getting out there. But remember, a lot of the foreign films, especially, are going to be heading for the fall film festivals. The Sony Pictures Classics picked up Son of Saul. I personally think that's a very good match. Uh, it will probably be submitted by Hungary in the Oscar race. So those aspects will give it much more attention if it wins an award here, something that may have, as you said earlier, and I do agree with that, that the role of the festival is to, is to bring focus to a film like this. It's a process of smuggling. That's the way that I like to think of it. But it really did bring up something kind of fascinating, because I totally agree. Like Foxcatcher, for example, you know, premiered last year, and I thought that the responses were through the roof. Everybody was saying Oscar for Steve Carell, Oscar for Best Picture, Best Director. And then the film really got a critical backlash, you know, when it first came out. And when did it come out? September, October? went through of the fall festival circuit. It did, but it got some pretty negative reviews. Reviews that didn't really greet it when it first premiered at Cannes, I feel anyways. I would argue that that was a classic case of a movie that had a pretty strong critical backing that didn't actually play that well for audiences. Oh, with and audiences that, as well. given that that was true, it did remarkably well to have, or, to have gotten Bennett Miller an Oscar an nomination. An Oscar nomination. One, a lot of people didn't see There isn't coming. anything quite as strange is that this year? I mean, the, the Carol situation, I think, is, is maybe being Well, that's why I'm more. curious to see how Carol p- plays out. It's not a bad comparison yeah. because Carol is a bit flat. It is. Well, and it's, and it's certainly dark in that, in that sense. But there are so many things that I've seen here over the years that I wish the rest of the world was so, still celebrating. And the immigrant. <laughs> so no, I mean, you know, The Immigrant is an interesting movie. I know you're not <laughs> a huge that. fan. Um, I, I, mean, <laughs> I was a mess. I was a slobbering mess by the end of that movie. Anybody else here? That's the other thing. You you're, you're at a festival like this, you can sometimes look at another person and say, did you see the same film well, that hey, I did? Harvey Weinstein and, and agrees become, with you. Completely, it's, a, it's like an unimaginable. There is one movie that has not, as far as I know, finalized the deal yet that I saw over at Critics Week. It's the first feature called Mediterranean. And uh, it's really good. It's a really strong first feature uh, from this guy, Jonas Carpigno, I think is how you say his last name, something to that effect. We're going to be hearing more about him, so I'll figure that out, because it's just a really well-done, very contained drama about these two migrants from Burkina Faso who go to Italy. You couldn't ask for a more timely subject. And whereas you hear that premise, you look at the front page of the New York Times, you think this movie's going to be about, say their journey on this rickety boat and whether they're going to survive, that's actually one small piece of the equation. It's really more about they have these outsized expectations about this dream life they're going to find on the other side of the ocean. And when reality comes in and they find themselves in a very racist society, a a very uh, kind of isolating place, it's just, it's, it's a very sad but also very involving situation of how they learn to deal with that. So I hope that gets out there. That actually, uh, Sounds like it Brooks comparison with Jacques Odiard's Deepen, which I saw this morning, which is actually one of my favorite films here, um, which is also uh, about some Sri Lankans who, who are uh, brought over, and they're a, f- a fake family uh, out of a refugee camp. Um, and, and Odiard shows this sort of extraordinary 
reassembling of a life that they build when they uh, end up in France. I can't wait to see it tonight. I had to file my review in the middle of the night for that 3D sex thing, so I couldn't Eric, get up I think early. you should tell everybody. First things first, Eric. What time you got to bed this morning? I think it was 5 a.m., but, you know, I'm still in New York time. I haven't really slept <laughs> normally since I got here, so yeah. not so bad. Any other questions? Back? Oh, go ahead. Well, actually, speaking about Deepan for a second, it it's a, raises another question about stuff that plays at the festival because I'm not sure that that's a finished film. I know that the title is subject to change at one point, and even watching it, it parts of it feel like it's really a work in progress. Um, and what is the sort of... The, the, the politics of reviewing something that you're not is you're not entirely sure is uh, what is going to be seen by the public. If they put it in the festival, then it's subject to review. Context is everything. I mean, going back to the Enter the Void situation I mentioned before, it didn't. Everybody when that movie came out, everybody was talking about the opening credits and they were talking about the length. It was like two and a half hours. The one I saw was I think slightly over three or something, and it had no credits. But you talk about it. You, you say that you mention how it played at Cannes for people, and the fact of the matter is, these are movies that have people backing them, sales agents who can make the judgment call: Should we go to Cannes or do we wait? If they want to wait, they could go to the fall circuit. So those options are there. And at Tribeca, you did something really interesting with the latest film from the Cove director. You wrote a kind of plea to the filmmaker on how to fix his movie. Because they did a work in progress. Yeah. Kind of, which they were, they were not happy about that. But look, it was a public screening. I could have bought a ticket and gone to that and written something on my blog. So, you know, it's a vulnerable environment. Festival directors do get into a conversation with their filmmakers. Sometimes telling them how to edit their films, which happens, and it has happened here. And it also is quite... Uh, which one? Didn't, did, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but didn't that happen with the Lisandro Alonso movie last year? That they Yes, it would have been in competition if he had changed the ending. That was the word on the street. And, and Abel Ferrara's Welcome to New York, supposedly... The festival also, there's a Jaco Demar... How do you say his yeah. name? Demarher? The Belgian director. I'm not sure. Which there is one an there. issue with him. I mean, it, it anyway, happens a the, lot the, here. But the other thing that happens is that a lot of these films really aren't finished, and they're rushed into competition. And something like Southland Tales is, is the result. And they ended up editing that before they. Gaspar Noé also supposedly rushed to get Love here to the finish line. I mean, I heard that the film was way over two hours and a half. Well, just a month ago, in the cut I saw last night, I think it was just over two hours. Yeah, but filmmakers it, often do edit again. Yeah, and that's still. a Wild Bunch title, so who knows what the real story is. <laughs> the question in the back. I saw two films I enjoyed a lot at the director's fortnight. I saw uh, My Golden Years by, um, I'm going to butcher this, but Deschaplin. Desplechin. Desplechin. And also Arabian Nights, the part one of three. And I was wondering if you had seen any of the films at the Fortnite, and what is the relationship currently between the Fortnite and the main competition? I I really wanted to see Arabian Nights. I was I thought I had it worked into my schedule, and then it turned out that the volume one screening that I went to didn't have English subtitles, which just didn't work for me. I'm really excited to see all three. I've heard great stuff from all kinds of people that I've been talking to, and Miguel Gomez, who made that. It's just an amazing film, probably the best filmmaker in Portugal right now. Tabu is a masterpiece that people should check out. And um, the, uh, what was the other film that you well, mentioned? The, the Desplechen. Oh, the Desplechen film, which... Uh, My Golden Years. I like his work very much, 
And I was a little disappointed by it because it was just another, for me, coming-of-age story. He's such an impeccable filmmaker, very personal, very beautiful. Um, at the same time that it was the male gaze on the nubile young girl, and, and I, I'm tired of it. It's very French. <laughs> I mean, it, and, and he's a very French filmmaker, and even Thierry Fromeau said that supposedly he would have put it in competition had they not had too many French films. But it's, it's a movie that appeals to a certain kind of sense of ability. I can see why it was in director's fortnight. Yeah, and the, so in terms of the relationship between Fortnite and the festival, I mean, officially, it's a totally different festival, which is really fascinating because it was created in some ways as a protest to what was seen as the stodgier Cannes lineup in the, in the late 60s by filmmakers like Truffaut and Godard and so forth, and now they're very much subservient to Cannes, and when you look at things that are in Fortnite... If it seems like it's something that could play in the competition at Cannes, there's always going to be some kind of story there. For example, when uh, Only God Forgives premiered in competition here, that was what we heard was that that movie was going to go to director's fortnight and that it would have looked bad on, on, on the official selection to have, have not had that movie. So they were basically forced to put it in competition because that's where they wanted it to be. And so you see a lot of interesting examples of that. Conversely, Fortnite ends up being a really good platform for other kinds of movies that just would not stand out here because they're, they don't have that kind of auteur-driven sensibility. They often have or, a lot of edgier material, younger filmmakers. Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room, filmmakers. for example. The, the, yeah, the, the edgy... And Critics like Week, too, which had yeah. It Follows last year. And has Mediterranean this time. So we have one up here. We need waiting music. Um, I saw Sicario about two days now, even though it feels like a week. And uh, I think that was one of the most extremely split films of the festival. People saying it had awards potential and other people saying it just was off in a long way. No way it has awards it potential. It very well. I was wondering what you thought about that film. I think its technical merits could definitely get noticed. Which ones? Roger Deakins does an amazing job of shooting the film. Because the it's editing, Roger Deakins. I mean, the action sequences, to me, are some of the best I've seen in years. That movie would have to be... It's going to be released by Lionsgate, which is absolutely appropriate, in the fall. I believe. Perfect distributor for the film. It would have to do very well and get rave reviews across the board for it to but get it technical did from nominations. Some of the top outlets. Scott found us at Variety was over the moon with it. So was Todd McCarthy over at Hollywood Reporter. Sorry, people, but people, they, people like, liked it. People like him. I wonder if this movie had been done by somebody who didn't have that kind of support system in place, if the reaction might have been much more to the filmmaker? side of it. The filmmaker. He's been steadily advancing towards more and more critical accolades. Agreed. But it also, is impeccably directed. You really well, can't Well, I think what's, what's notable about this but movie... The screenplay is bad. The, the screenplay, screenplay is not is great. Bad. But I, it, because the action sequences are so well directed, it's his advance towards being a more mainstream director. He's going to do a Blade Runner sequel yeah. next, shot by Roger Deakins. And there's not that much dialogue in the film. I mean, the action sequences are largely silent for the most part. There's like four big set pieces. It opens with a phenomenally tense one. Um, I, I, I liked it just for those reasons alone. I, I don't think you can discount the filmmaking and just call it a bad film outright. It's not a bad film. It's just a mediocre one and it can. I'm not the saying same it's thing. a bad film. I'm saying that it's a film for which I had high expectations which wound up being a routine, well-executed thriller as opposed to something with awards potential. Mm. So we probably have time for maybe one or two more if there's any burning questions. 
Uh, just this morning, I saw Cresha at the Critics Week, and I was wondering if you guys had any chances yet to see any films over there or at the Unsut and Regard section. Yeah, I mean, we saw Cresha back when it premiered at the South by Film Festival, where it was the sensation. It won both the Audience Award and the Grand Jury Prize. Talk about a discovery! Award. That movie, nobody was talking about that movie until no the day one. it won. And it screened so late in the festival too. Right. Um, after a lot of films that we thought were going to go on to win the big awards did, and. Uh, Caught us by a surprise. I loved it. I thought it was really involving and it's good. It's a unique story behind the making of the film that makes it that really strong first feature that makes you go, "Who the heck is this guy? And and what's he going to do next?" And we're definitely going to be hearing more from him. Mediterranean being the other example from from Critics Week. And we know what he's doing next. A24 announced that they picked up the film for distribution out of the festival here, and um, they're also planning to help get out his next release, which I think is a horror film. Um, so it's quite a big deal for this young filmmaker that A24 is backing his second film. And that's actually a similar pattern to David Robert Mitchell, who made The Myth of American Sleepover, which was his first feature, premiered at Critics Week. The next week he came back with a horror film, It Follows. Yeah. So maybe that's, you know, we're seeing some sort of trend here. You make a good first feature that shows you know what you're doing, and then you scare people, and you come back. <laughs> On that note, thank you all. Enjoy the rest of your festival. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.